Well, uh, who feels really good about the game this afternoon? Who is just being an overly optimistic Chiefs fan? Who's like, uh, I don't know. That's kind of me, I'll be honest. Everybody's asking me, what do you think? I'm like, I don't know. They've got a really good defense, so if, <laughs> if the offense does what it should, right? You know, it's funny, people have been uh, talking about my, my hoodie or whatever, and, and uh, you know, when I first moved here, I, I threw a little elbow here and there and made fun of the Chiefs a little bit here and there, and I told you guys then, like, I'm going to say this now because within a year or two, I'll be fully on board, and I will admit we picked the easiest possible time to move to Kansas City and jump on the bandwagon, so... I will never pretend to be one of you all. I didn't have to suffer through, you know, some of the, the, the Todd Haley era or some of those. So great for you all for enduring that and getting what you're getting to watch now, right? Hey, we're glad you guys are here with us. If you're in person, if you're joining us online, uh, we are in week four of this series called A Call to Cruciformity, where we're looking through the book of Philippians. Uh, and, and if you've missed any of the last few weeks, just kind of a, a quick recap. First off, on the title itself, I had somebody at 8 o'clock say they were glad they, I said this part because they, they missed the first week. If you missed any of this, the word cruciformity, when we get this word, cruciformity means to look like the crucified one. It looks like, in other words, you look like Jesus on the cross. And so that's where we get this name called a cruciformity. That's what Philippians is all about. And if you don't know this about the letters of Paul, the way he writes, and that's a lot of our New Testament, are letters that he has written either to uh, churches in specific areas. This is one to a church in a town called Philippi, which is in modern-day Greece, or letters he's written to certain people like 1 and 2 Timothy or some of those. Paul's letters tend to have kind of this progression to them. He will... Uh, write a section, and that leads directly into the next section. So a lot of the the sections that we start in Paul's letters always start with the word therefore, which is kind of the fancy way of saying, I said all that to say this. But that's kind of what Paul does. So let's recap real quick where we've been so far. We're in week four. Today's hitting the halfway point of Philippians. But kind of as we've gone through this letter, the first uh, part of chapter one we talked about a few weeks ago was about partnership. And we said that gospel partnership is essential and vital and important, not just for the church, but for you also. A lone wolf has a hard time running very far, but when we're in a pack, we can run a long ways and run together. The second week, and in the last half of chapter one, we asked the question, what are you living for? Like, like what is it that you live for? And we said, true joy is found when you spread the gospel and you make Jesus and church and the gospel a priority in your life. Last week, we looked at the first part of chapter 2, and we talked about humility. And we talked about specifically the humility of Jesus, where uh, Paul talks about Jesus coming down from heaven and taking on our form and being obedient all the way to the cross. And we said oh, that true humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's valuing others as greater than yourself. Ultimately, our goal is to look like Jesus. And Paul lays out in Philippians, it's to look like the crucified Jesus, the one who gave all and and humbled himself and sacrificed himself for all. And Philippians tells us how to do that while finding joy. And, And so as we read through these sections, it's like any part of the Bible, there's always kind of peaks and valleys with that. And when I say that, I don't mean that the valleys are parts that are bad or they don't mean anything. They just might not be as exciting or as powerful or as life-changing as what we just read. 
And we're kind of in one of those today. I'll just be honest with you. The first part of chapter 2, talking about humility, it's one that I know in my Bible and many others, there's a lot of that highlighted. And I highlight stuff in my Bible because I want that to sink in. I want it to catch my attention, and I'll, I'll always go to it and read it every time I'm coming through there just to, to see that because I want to memorize that and make it part of my life. Talking about humility is one of those. Next week in chapter 3, it kind of kicks back up to something that's a little bit more of that impactful punch on us. This is one of those sections today that's very easy when you're reading through a, a reading plan or reading through the book to kind of just fly through because he starts talking about names and talking about people and sometimes it's easy to just kind of blitz past that. Can I encourage us today to not do that? Because even in these sections that may seem kind of very subtle, that's exactly what it is. There's subtleties in there and specifically subtleties that help us to look more like Jesus and specifically to live more like Jesus. That's kind of one of the themes that we're going to hit on throughout the rest of this, this letter is that the best way to look like Jesus is to live like Jesus. And, and as we read, especially through this last half of chapter 2, Paul kind of gives two subtle ways that we can live like Jesus and what happens when we do. The first one is this. When we live like Jesus, we participate in showing others the way. We participate in showing others the way. What do I mean by the way? What it means to live for Jesus. When we live for Jesus, we show others what it means to live for Jesus. Sounds pretty self-explanatory, right? But Paul's going to show specifically three ways that we do that. The first, we show others the way by our obedience. That's a fun word, right? You wanted to come to church today so you could get told to do what you're supposed to do. That's what we want to come for. We love the word obedience, right? I didn't get many amens on that, so I'm assuming none of us do. But we live by our obedience. Starting in verse 12 of Philippians 2, Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's saying, be obedient. And it's easy to be obedient when I'm there and, and I'm there to help hold you accountable, but I'm not there. So it's even more important that you remain obedient when I'm not there. What's he asking for obedience to specifically? Well, specifically, he's asking for obedience to the teachings of Jesus and to Paul's teachings and, and to teachings of anybody who would speak faithfully in the name of Jesus. Now, let me put a big disclaimer on that. Because he's not just saying blindly follow and blindly be obedient to somebody who's teaching the word. Because Paul has times where he is correcting, in other letters, correcting those who are teaching the word wrong. What he's saying is, make sure you're holding accountable your leaders, but be obedient to their teachings if they're teaching in the name of Jesus the way I taught you, is what Paul is saying here. And when we talk about obedience, you need to understand that's not just a Paul rule. That's not something he's just throwing in because he wants to. He's teaching it because that's what Jesus said to do. If you remember in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gives the Great Commission. You may know this, you may not. But the Great Commission goes like this. He tells his apostles, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the part we typically remember. We kind of forget sometimes about verse 20, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. In other words, what Jesus is saying here that Paul is going to reiterate is, yes, it is important to believe in Christ and get baptized and to, to come to church. Yes, that's important. But it also requires obedience to follow that. 
Like that's not enough just on its own. Kind of like with the woman caught in adultery, he tells her, I, I don't condemn you, I forgive you, but go and sin no more. There's obedience that follows with commitment. There's obedience that follows with faith. Paul isn't with them. So he can't hold them accountable like a pastor might hold a church accountable or you might hold somebody else accountable. He's not there to do that. They're still young in their faith. But that doesn't mean he's telling them, hey, just do everything that I said and don't, you know, don't ask any questions. He's telling them, no, stick to what I taught you. Because what I taught you is what Christ taught. What I taught you is sound doctrine. What I taught you is how to believe in him. Paul talks about obedience throughout his letters, and he talks about what obedience does. Again, it's not a word we like. When we think about obedience, we think about our children, or maybe we think about our, our dogs being taught to you know, do certain things on command. That's, the, I think, the, the mental image that some of us get sometimes with that word. But when we read through what Paul writes in his other letters, obedience does so much for our walk with Christ. He says, back in, in just the previous section we just read, uh, read that o- obedience leads to a sacrificial lifestyle. Back in chapter 2, verse 8, he's talking about the humility of Jesus. He says, Jesus, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. In other words, it has to do with sacrifice. He he says that obedience in Romans chapter 1 comes from faith. It's the product of what you believe. When, When you believe what somebody's telling you, it's easier to do what they're telling you to do. And he says in Romans chapter 6 that obedience leads to righteousness. He says specifically that you are a slave to whatever you obey. Now, something you need to remember, all of us obey something. All of us follow and worship something. And he's saying you're a slave to whatever that is. So in his case, he's saying be a slave to Jesus. Obey Jesus. That leads to righteousness. So we we show others the way by our obedience, but we also show others the way by our unity. Now, this is, for me, as a, as a topic, I am pretty strong and, and passionate about when it comes to the church. I want a church to be united. I want a church to be one. And I love, because Paul starts this, this next little bit here, with maybe every pastor's favorite verse in the entire Bible. In, in Philippians 2, verse 14, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That'll preach right there. You know, I know you all like short sermons. I'm just going to stop right there and be done for the rest of the day, okay? God bless you. Go Chiefs, right? I said that at 8 o'clock, and I hear an amen. And it was Brad's father-in-law. That was the best part. And and I looked over and heard laughing, and it was Colette. So, like, yeah, yeah, that's that's great. No, No, but do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? He, He goes on, that you may be blameless or innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul kind of does a little contrast. He starts here, goes here, and comes back here. He's talking specifically about why you need to avoid the the, the uh, moaning and grumbling and complaining. It's because we are called to be lights in the world. We're called to be spotless and pure. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. He knows that we're broken. He knows we're sinful. He says that in Romans 3. We all have sinned. We all continue to sin. But he's saying here, we have to be an alternative to the world. We need to be pure and blameless in the sight of God because we are in a, he calls it, twisted and crooked world. 
And folks, if the church offers no alternative to what the world has to offer, then what's the point? What's the point in coming? Why are we going to draw people in here? If we're just wandering like they are, imagine finding somebody lost in the woods in the darkness and you try to lead them out of there without any light. You're just guessing that you're going in the right direction. You're guessing that you're going where you're supposed to go. No, we are called to be light. Now, specifically here in this passage, Paul is referring back to the Israelites who grumbled and complained while they were wandering the desert with Moses. And when they grumbled and complained, that led to them grumbling and complaining to Moses about Moses and to Moses about God and to Moses about each other. Maybe even a part of a church like that, where there's just grumbling and complaining about each other to each other, about each other to the pastor, to the pastor about each other, on and on and on and on. What does that accomplish? Hear me out here. Unity, it doesn't mean you can't have an opinion that's different than mine. It doesn't mean you can't have an opinion that might be a little different than the churches as a whole. What it means is that unity, it means we come together in spite of those disagreements. And specifically, we put the mission of the church as a priority above our opinions and disagreements. And I will tell you, there are times that starts with me. There are many times in a staff meeting where I am the one disagreeing with everybody else, but I put that to the side because I realize this is what we need to do. This is what we need to, to accomplish. Remember what we said last week, sometimes it requires that, that humility, that swallowing your pride for the sake of unity. So here's the problem with, with disputes. Here's the problem with disunity. At some level, it can just be a difference of opinion. But sometimes that difference of opinion escalates into an actual dispute. And when an actual dispute happens, suddenly that's bigger than what the church is trying to accomplish. Suddenly that's more important to you than what the church is actually set out to do, what our mission actually is. And sometimes that negative attitude can develop towards other people in the church or towards leadership in the church or towards the church or God in general. And sometimes that can be catastrophic to someone's faith. I know people who are no longer a part of church and may even say they no longer believe in God, and it started with a dispute in the church. It started with two people unable to put their pride aside and be united in the sake of the gospel. But here's the thing, too. You have to understand division also goes against the wishes of Jesus. Jesus, as he is being led to the cross, again, the crucified one. We're called the cruciformity. That's the whole point of this series. What does the crucified Jesus look like? As he's being led to Gethsemane, led to go suffer, led to be put on a cross, he prays a prayer that John records in John chapter 17. And in that prayer, he says this, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. He's talking about the church here. Those who will believe in Jesus through the message of the church, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. I don't want to say those are the dying words of, of, of somebody going to the cross, but that's kind of what that is. One of the last things Jesus tells his disciples is love one another, and one of the last things he prays is God let them be united. That's what Jesus wanted here. Why? Because he told us what we were supposed to do, and we can't do that without unity. 
Paul understands this. That's why Paul repeated a command Jesus had already given us in this passage. He's telling us to go be the light of the world. Jesus uh, preached this in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. He says, you are the light of the world. A town on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, he says, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Think about it. If one light can illuminate something, how, how much more can all the lights illuminate it? If you went to watch a game, a night game at Arrowhead or at Kauffman Stadium or, or a sporting game at night, and just one light up on the, the top of the stadium shine down on the, on the field, sure, you can see a little bit, but when they all shine down, it illuminates it like it's daylight. That's what the, the power of unity can be. And, and what Paul is, is stressing here is that if we're spending all of our energy in disputes with each other, we don't have the energy to do what we're supposed to do which is go make disciples of all nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So again, sometimes we just have to remember that. It's okay to have an opinion. It's okay to disagree. But at some point, our humility has to just show up and we have to just remember the mission of the church is more important. The third way we show each other the way and we show others the way is by our joyful sacrifice. There's a fun oxymoron for you. How many of you have sacrificed, and later you're like, that was so fun. I cannot wait to do it again. I don't mean giving a little bit, because there's, you know, there's joy in giving. There's joy in serving. There's joy in helping. But the very definition of sacrifice is giving something significant up. And the greater the sacrifice, the greater it is you have to give up. And Paul's calling for you to do that with joy. It says in verse 16, I hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. What Paul's saying here is I am on the verge of giving my life for you. I am in chains. He said that over and over and through a lot of his letters he is. But what's he saying? I'm probably going to give my life. I'm probably going to be executed. But that's okay so long as you do what we talked about. You continue on what I started, which is what Jesus actually started. You continue to preach the good news. You continue to bring people to Christ. How many of you know what it's like to do something and it just goes for naught? That's what Paul's making sure doesn't happen here. I don't mind to give my life for Christ and for you all. But don't let it be in vain. Don't let this church die out. Uh, with, with kids, we're like this. I don't know how many times we will clean Titus's room, and within five minutes, it's like we never even started, you know. Uh, when Jennifer was sick a few weeks ago, I was in the kitchen almost the whole time. She was upstairs in bed for four days, so I was down with my kids. I felt like I never left the kitchen. It was just constant. I would fix a meal. I would clean up. 30 minutes left after I'm done, they're wanting snacks. The kitchen's dirty again. It's just like, I finally told her, I am not cleaning our house again until our kids move out. I just can't do this. <laughs> and Titus is five. You can do the math there, right? Now, I was thinking this week, if you've seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, good example of this. The whole purpose of the movie is this squad of troops is sent out in, into France in World War II to find one person. 
And by the end of it, I'm going to go ahead and spoil it, but it's 30 years old at this point, so you should have watched it by now. By the end of it, there's two guys in the squad of eight left. The rest of them gave their lives to find this one person. And as he is dying, Tom Hanks' character, Captain Miller, tells Private Ryan, which is Matt Damon's character, earn this. We were willing to give our lives and we would do it again, but earn this. And I love how earlier in the movie he says this guy better invent a longer-lasting light bulb or do something, something with his life. But he simply grabs him by the shirt and says, earn this. I feel like that's kind of what Paul's saying here. Not earn this, do something with this. Continue to preach the gospel. Continue to bring people to Jesus. Continue to live, live a life for him. And then one day, join me in giving your life for the gospel and spreading that on to the next person as well too. If you want to look like Jesus, you have to live like Jesus. And the first way we do that is by participating and showing others the way. But the second way we get to live like Jesus, and the second result that comes from it is when we live like Jesus, we get to show people what he looks like. Now, I don't mean in the physical form. I don't mean that painting your grandma had in her dining room wall. I don't mean the, you know, the flannel graph, flannel board that we used to have in Sunday school. I don't mean that. People in the world today don't get to see Jesus. We don't actually get to. We read about him. We know about him. We learn about him. But how we live our lives will show people what he looks like. This next section of of Philippians 2, I'm just going to read it to you. It's a long section. I didn't want to put it up on the screens. So I'm just going to read this to you. You can follow along if you want. It starts in verse 19, and I'm, I'm reading out of the ESV. But listen to what Paul says specifically about two people here and about what they're doing for Jesus. He says in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered on by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly... I myself will also come. Verse 25, he says, I also have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed with me because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul's talking specifically about two people here, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is a guy we probably don't read a lot about. He's mentioned a few times in some of Paul's letters, but it's obvious he's somebody important to Paul. Timothy we know a lot more about because Paul writes letters to him. In fact, just before Paul is is executed, he writes a letter to Timothy, his protege, the next one up, the one that he mentored and poured into. And as we look at people here, people like Timothy and Epaphroditus, you need to understand something about yourself and about me and about all of us. I don't know how you function, how you learn things. I'm more of a visual learner. I see, and it teaches me. When I was younger, I would watch my dad or my grandpa do some sort of project, and I would learn how to do that by watching them. They didn't really have to tell me. I could just see it. 
Now, sometimes I would ask questions, and that's not to say that I've got it all figured out. I sometimes try a project, and it's a disaster. But I would watch them and mimic them. When I was in high school, a couple of my really good friends got into, really got into Frisbee golf, and they were really good at it. And I watched them. I watched how they would step up onto the concrete pad and, and take their drive, and I mimicked that and got it down and could do it really well. We, we often learn by watching. And a lot of times we are teaching people a lot more than we realize all the time. Let me ask you a question here. What are you teaching people? Just in your day-to-day life, I don't mean when you stop and start working on a project. I don't mean when you stop and do something specific. In your day-to-day life, what are you teaching people? What are you showing them? Because again, you want to look like Jesus, you have to live like Jesus. And when we show people Jesus repeatedly, people will start to become like him. The more we show Jesus, the more people will start to become like him. On the flip side of that, the more we show people what Jesus isn't, the more we show people a negative version of Jesus, or maybe our own personalized version of Jesus, the more they'll start to become like a Jesus that doesn't actually exist. The more they'll start to become like a Jesus that's just somebody in the world. So again, what are you showing them? Here's kind of a a takeaway challenge for you today. Pay close attention to how much you look like Jesus. Every so often, you need to look in the mirror. Or maybe, maybe you need to be very, very humble and honest and get somebody in your life that you can trust to judge everything that you do and say, you know what, right now, I love you, but you're not looking a lot like Jesus. But they can be honest with you about that, and you welcome that. We all need accountability. One of my old pastors used to say, everybody needs a Paul and everybody needs a Timothy. Everybody needs somebody pouring into us We need somebody we can pour into. Because whether you realize it or not, that's already happening. Whether you have accepted it or acknowledged it or not, there's already somebody you're looking up to that you're mimicking, and there's somebody else mimicking you. I told you a story a few weeks ago about uh, all of those people that I looked up to when I was a kid. Growing up through the different churches I went to and the people who were, were very inspirational and, and helped me and formed me to get me to where I am today. Just not even, not even as a pastor, but just as a person, just as a follower of Jesus. And, and I thought about that because even just learning to worship Jesus, I did it by sitting out in the crowd, watching other people, learning how to pray. I did it by listening to others and watching what they did. Or, or even learning how to read the Bible is by watching people. Who's watching you? What are you showing them? Because I can give you that list of all the people, like I did a couple of weeks ago, but I can give you another list as well, too. And it's the people who showed me the wrong things. And I would never name names on that. I'm not going to do that. But it's people who really didn't follow God. They might have put on a show on Sundays, but they weren't living for God the rest of the week. They weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And before you, you go any further with that, All of us struggle. All of us have sin. Paul says that we all have sin, we all continue to sin. We're all broken. We're all sinners. We're all saved by grace if you've come to to Christ. But are you trying your best to follow Jesus? Or are you just kind of going through the motions? Because someone is watching. I always said one of the best ways I can be accountable is by being a dad. 
And it never fails that, you know, one of our kids will say something, and Jennifer and I both look at each other. We go, well, where did you learn that word? Oh, wait, yeah, I know where you learned that word. <laughs> Not from school. <laughs> one of us. Parents, you probably can relate. Or you see your kids do something. Like even, even something as simple as the other day we were driving through traffic and, and somebody kind of whipped in front of me. And before I could say it, Titus yells, are you kidding me? <laughs> or the other day, Titus tells my dog, Ozzy, take it down a notch. I'm like, gee, where has he heard that before, you know? <laughs> but what about the things that matter? What about the things that are important? I say this in, in marital, premarital counseling sessions, and, and I, I say this to you too. Dads, if you want your sons or daughters to know how to treat a wife or as a, a daughter to know how to be treated by a husband, show them by treating your wife that way. Wives, same way with you. If you want your, your daughters to know how to treat a husband, show them by treating your husband that way. What you show people matters. What you do matters probably more than what you say. And I think that's very important for us because somebody is watching you. So two questions for you. Number one, who's watching you? And number two, what are you showing them? Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, I love this line. It says, follow me as I follow the example of Christ. Paul knew he was not perfect. He even referred to himself as the worst among sinners. But he's saying, I'm gonna chase after Jesus and I'm going to do everything I can to look like him, so come do it with me. A pastor in Kentucky that I really, really look up to is one of the most humble people I've ever met. Never uses the title lead or senior pastor. His title is lead follower for this very reason right here. He says, I'm just trying to become more like Jesus on my own every day, and I want the church to come along with me. But that's important, because if you want to look more like Jesus and show people Jesus more, don't forsake this right here. This gathering here. I know some people are watching online today for various reasons, but don't lose track of the importance of doing this together. I was watching a documentary last night uh, on Yellowstone National Park, and they kept showing this one wolf, and they called him Blacktail. This one, one wolf that wasn't a part of any pack, and he was struggling to survive. Sure, he knows how to eat. He knows how to do all the things wolves are, he knows how to hunt. He knows how to do those things. But one wolf can't take down a bison. One wolf can't take down an elk, the things that they rely on. One wolf can't defend himself, but a pack can. And it showed him struggling to survive the winter, and he barely did, and eventually was accepted by a pack at the end of the episode. And they said, now his worries are over. He's not going to have to wonder if he's going to be able to eat or defend himself. He's got a pack to come around him. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer kind of stresses the same thing here. And I think this is very important for us when it comes to how we can look more like Jesus. I don't have this on the screens, but in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, it says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the day more as the day approaches. What are you showing people? Are you showing them Jesus? Are you showing them the way? Because when you live like Jesus, you start to look like Jesus. 
And if we want to become like the crucified one, if we want to look like the one who humbled and poured himself out, that's what it takes. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your son who demonstrated humility for us, who showed us what unity looks like, who showed us what sacrifice and obedience look like. And God, I pray right now for everybody across this room, all of us who have somebody watching us, God, I pray we would always make room in our lives for you and also room for those who are watching us. God, don't don't let us get ourselves into a spot where it's all about us. Don't let us get ourselves into a spot where it's all about what we want. But God, let us grab that same humble spirit of Jesus. Let us welcome others in to show them you. Let us talk about you, yes, but let us show you even more. Because God, I don't know about anybody else. I know when people look at me, I want them to see Jesus. Not because of me at all, but because of what you're doing through me. God, we're so thankful for Jesus. We pray today in his name, amen. Good morning. Um, I have the communion thought for today, and I was kind of going through some different thoughts about this, and I I thought this would be kind of fun. And I'm, the camera probably can't see this, but you guys can, oh, you can't see it either. So what this is, is a guitar tuner. So how many guitar players do we have out here? So we, none? Okay, all right, just wait. So this helps you keep your guitar in tune, correct? This is what a tuner does. There's other ways to get your guitar in tune. You can tune it to the piano, which drives Gary crazy, or you can tune it, to, there's tuning forks you can use or other methods, but this is how you keep your guitar in tune. It's a, it's a nice little tool. But the interesting thing about the guitar is I could go upstairs and tune and play and come down here to a different environment and it'll be out of tune. Or I can leave it sit for several days, not touch it, not move it, and be in the same environment and it goes out of tune. Because you have to use something to keep it in tune, amen? That's what this Bible is all about. Kurt was talking about us being in tune together as a, as, a, as a body. This Bible can't just be sitting on a shelf for days and expect to be in tune with God. As you start to get ready for communion, this is about being in tune, not only with God, but within each other. Because he tells you, you know, if you, if you have something against your brother, when you go to take that communion, you kind of bring burning coals on your head because you haven't made it right. You're not in tune with each other. That's what the, the reason behind communion is for. Remembering God, and I think, I read from Luke, but it says, remember, he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the, the cup, and after he blessed it, he always blessed it. Said, he, he kept, passed the cup around and said, whenever you drink this, I do this in, in remembrance of me. So that's what this moment is all about. Just be in tune with God, using the things that he gives us to be in tune with him and taking communion for that very reason. Amen. Let's partake together.